All right. Unstandardized English. JPB Gerald. Talk about neurologically, racially, and linguistically minoritized people. Okay? Okay. My guest tonight, tonight, today, whatever, um, is Laura Bustamante. And I, I'm not trying to say that to be um, superficial or, or um, insulting. What I mean is when she, when I, when I was on a Zoom with her a couple of weeks ago and we were talking and that's how we ended up with this episode, that wasn't the recording, that was us talking and then we're going to do an episode next week. Um she her her little Zoom name was said spelled like you would expect Laura to be spelled L A U R A, um, but then the little in parentheses says Lauda, L like loud like quiet versus loud, and then A H. And I said, oh, that's not what it sounds like. But then when I realized, like if you say the R in um, certain types of Spanish a certain way, it does sound like a D, right? Lauda. And uh, I think that that's really cool because I have. Um, I have another friend named Saurab, and uh, he he's in, he's Indian, and um, his name is not spelled like um, a saw, like S A W R U B, but when he goes in there, he he puts Saurab on his Zoom. And here's the thing, we shouldn't have to do this. Now, my name is Justin Gerald. Somehow, people get Gerald wrong. I was on a talk last week talking about my book, which you should buy. It's in the comments. Uh, sorry, in the links. Um, and the person running it was calling me Gerald. Like, Gerald... I, whose name is Gerald? No one's name is Gerald. That's ridiculous, right? And um, I realized that, like, for, for certain people, especially people who are people of color, people will just make up some bullshit about how your name is pronounced, you know? So, like, I think it's cool that you can represent your name in different ways, like Lauda or Saurab, um, but we shouldn't have to do this. I'm not saying that people will know automatically how to pronounce your name. There's no reason to assume people will know. But, like, most of the time, if you meet somebody, it's one thing if, like, you're on Zoom and you never met somebody, I can see why that the, 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 the explanation is necessary, because you never met the people before. But once you meet somebody, like... Let me explain this. A couple of jobs ago, I used to work in a nonprofit. I mentioned this. I mean, I work in a nonprofit now, but I used to work in a nonprofit with a senior center, right? And um, all my colleagues would refer to my one colleague as Huyin. H-U-H-Y. I mean, her name was spelled H-Y-O, but for whatever reason, they all said Huyin, right? And so then... But I knew her name was spelled H-Y-O. And I was like, this is weird. So I used to live in Korea. And kyo I mean, that's a Korean name, right? The two syllables with the hyphen. And I actually said, kyo can you spell your name for me in Korean? And she wrote it. The woman's name was kyo but she did not want to upset the boat enough. And so when people called her kyo they didn't argue. And what's upsetting about it is that I said, her name is kyo 
to my colleagues and my boss, and they were mad at me for correcting them. But like the woman's name was not what you were saying. All the, these people were apparently close enough to this woman to be not my boss, but at the time, but her her colleagues were quote unquote close enough to her to be named godmothers to her child. And yet they still didn't know what her fucking name was. Names are really important. I made a mistake yesterday where I thought someone's name was Marcus, but it was Marquise. The only reason I thought that is because my colleague was calling him Marcus. And like, I felt really bad because especially he's a black guy. And as a black guy, like, I really don't want people to disrespect names. Do you understand how many people call him? My son's name is Ezel. He's been on here before. Uh, the real question is... Why don't people ask questions rather than assuming? Because here's the thing. If you are European and you have what is seen as a difficult name in English, people will fucking ask you. Right? They will. But if you are from another place or your name is from another place, they won't ask you. They'll just make assumptions. Ezel's name is not hard to say. It's two syllables, right? It's Ezel. But people look at it and they're like, eyes bug out and they go, Ezel, right? Which I understand Ezel is a name. But uh, it's spelled differently. And then there's like phone autocorrect changes Ezel into Ezekiel, which is silly. Um, so some people think his name is Ezekiel. Um, or I go to the playground and I'm talking to him and other people are just trying to listen to what I'm saying and they call him Ezra. There's nothing wrong with the name Ezra, but that's not his name. So I just want to be clear that like, especially, especially, especially for people of color, do not assume, right? If they have a name like mine, Justin, yeah, you can call me fucking Justin. You don't have to ask me how to pronounce my name. For whatever reason, people seem to not know how to pronounce the word Gerald, even though it's a president's name, right? I'm not saying that makes it better. I'm just saying, like, you know how to pronounce the word G-E-R-A-L-D. So anyway, I want to talk about names. Otherwise, like I said, I'm here with uh, Laura Bustamante, Okay, and she is just a really interesting researcher. She's talking about neurodivergence in computational psychiatry, um, really getting into the brain science of neurodivergence. And that's something I think we need to have on this show. I know this show was originally about language teaching, but I'm not a language teacher anymore. If you're still listening, then... I hope you find this interesting. And, you know, I always make these self-deprecating jokes about the fact that not many people listen to this show, and I appreciate all of you for listening. You know you could tell people about this, right? So, you know, I would love this show to be ten times bigger, right? My usual listens like a couple of hundred people. There's not a whole lot I can do besides my Twitter account. Um, I could put a lot of effort into making, like, TikToks, but, like, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not doing that. So, you know, tell people about it. If you think it's valuable, tell people. I don't have a problem being a small niche podcast. I enjoy it. And there's no pressure, right? Um, but, you know, it would be nice to have more listeners. So if you can help with that, feel free. Otherwise, enjoy the episode with La uh, Dr. Laura Bustamante. And we will talk in a second. All right, folks, so I'm here with Dr. Laura Ana Bustamante, and we're going to talk about her work and some some things about neurodivergence and thinking and all that sort of stuff. But before we get into that, doctor, would you please introduce yourself to people, tell them what you do and all that sort of stuff. 
Yeah, hi. Thank you, Justin, for having me. Um, my name is Lada Bustamante. I'm a computational cognitive neuroscientist. So what that means is that I use mathematical models of uh, human behavior to understand how we make um, decisions in uh, kind of laboratory settings. But my research also touches on um, how decision making might be uh, altered when people are experiencing um, certain psychiatric symptoms, including um, depression, apathy, anhedonia. Uh, and at the same time as doing that research, I also uh, identify as neurodivergent, disabled. I'm Cuban-American. And so uh, sometimes I look at my research literature and field with a little bit of a different lens from others. Forgot to unmute myself. Um, yeah, all right, that's really interesting. I think that um, I have all these ideas about neurodivergence and so forth, but I don't really know the brain side of it, you know, um, at least not personally. Like, I've done my scant external research, but it's hardly professional research. So I'm always interested to learn a little bit more about that sort of thing um, because, yes, it's an identity. It's you know, a way that we can build solidarity and stuff, but there's also like stuff going on in our brains. <laughs> so, mm -hmm. uh, and, and I don't have the, I know I don't have the training for it, but also I, I, I don't think that I have the patience to do that sort of work, you know, more, I already said professionally. Uh, so I always try to find at least an occasion to talk to people who really know what they're talking about in terms of what's actually happening in our heads, you know, the, so let's talk about decision making though, because that's sort of what you uh, were talking about. And um, yeah, I guess. Well, I don't know exactly which. I mean, you know, you have a lot of studies uh, that you're at least one name of of the authors in. But in what way would you say that sort of? And I know neurodivergence is not one thing. Mm -hmm. Prefacing this next question with I know. But in, or maybe maybe the answer will be different depending on the type of neurodivergence. But like, in what way do you, have you found either just from your own experience or from your research or from discussions you've had that neurodivergence um, changes decision making processes? Okay, great. That's a great question. So um, my sp particular specialty is in um, it's called cognitive control, also executive functions. So I think if you're thinking about the psychiatric diagnostic labels. Um, that we can also label um, more expansively as neurodivergence. Uh, we're kind of thinking about prefrontal cortex functions, goal-oriented behaviors, um, working memory, holding things in mind. Um, and within cognitive control, um, I mean, I guess one thing is that when psychologists do, you know, neuropsychological testing, uh, you would find in various laboratory measures that um, uh, people with psychiatric disabilities might perform worse on those measures. They might also tell you that they have um, certain symptoms uh, that I call cognitive control symptoms. But you could also think of as like a executive dysfunction that would be like, oh, I've been being a little slow, brain fog. Um, I've had trouble holding items in mind, you know, different things like this. And so um, when we're thinking about the problems that people are facing that they might be seeking help with, um, the 
angle in my research that we're looking at is it's often thought of as it's the ability or the capacity of this person to do those different functions. And what I'm looking at is, um, is there actually a change in their decision making that might be leading to this? So, for example, if we take um, depression, which some of my research is on now, um, if maybe you're performing uh, a little bit worse on these neuropsych tests, Maybe it's because um, it's feeling more effortful for you. Your effort costs are higher. Or maybe the rewards are not as salient for you. What do you care about, you know, what this clinician thinks that your functioning is? Or it might be about um, this thing we call efficacy, which is, you know, even if you, even if I exert this effort, is it really going to change my outcomes? Is this going to be something that's helpful for me? And if we think about motivation, motivation might be something that you could actually help people to uh, find access more motivation. So that's kind of the deficit side of it. But on the flip side, um, if we think more expansively about these cognitive functions, what we definitely know is that different people have different styles and different approaches. So if we're thinking about my ADHDers out there, you know, a lot of people experience hyperfocus and they're actually able to stay on a task for a very long time period. When the motivation is high, they could have super effective cognitive control. And so when, um, so I think that I always like to keep in mind that diversity of, it's not just your capacity or what you can do, it's the context that you're in. Are you motivated? Do you actually think that something good is gonna happen if you put in effort? Uh, you know, if your teacher hates you, and you think they're always going to give you a bad grade, why are you going to focus in school? And I think when people are coming with certain psychiatric problems, it might be, oh, you know, there's trouble at my job. Maybe you're not being valued or, you know, the world is not school. It might not be built for your learning style. And so I think there are uh, differences, and I really hope that there's more research on them. But if we're in the more traditional medical pathology it could also just um, look like on these very standardized tests, oh, you're performing worse, but why is that? And also what might make you different from whatever's the norm that we're setting? So, oh, we brought in a bunch of people and this is how they perform in this task. And uh, we might have like a, a kind of neurotypical reference frame that also um, might be doing a disservice or casting a more negative light on the neurodivergent style. A lot of stuff resonated in there. Uh, certainly thinking about times when what I would have known before you said that as executive function has been a struggle, um, for cognitive control, right? Um, thinking about, you know, we've all read studies about the ways that people with different types of neurodivergence struggle with executive function, but like thinking about like, are they struggling with it or are they choosing not to invest in it? Because it doesn't seem worthwhile. And, yeah. um, and then the, the further question is, is that choice conscious? Right. Yeah. And there, I think the answer is, um, is mostly no and sometimes yes. So something that we do know is that on the millisecond to millisecond basis, your brain is making decisions about what should I pay attention to? What's my goal? And it's using all the input. So. You're doing all the time and you're certainly not thinking about what should I pay attention to all the time. 
Um, at the same time, a lot of like motivation techniques ask you to, you know, like a Pomodoro or something, ask you to make that process more explicit for yourself. Um, but I think if you think about something like a special interest, for example, you'll see that people put huge amounts of cognitive effort and kind of processes that involve cognitive control to learn about something that they're motivated for. And so what you could be seeing in the laboratory or in settings where people, you know, aren't uh, performing as well is could be that they're not motivated. It could be for very good reasons. Um and maybe identifying those barriers in their environment would be a more productive approach because another thing that we know from research is that it's very genetic. Executive functioning seems to be very heritable, but context, learning experiences, motivation, I think those are more pliable. And um, if we also looked at it as that, how can we find the ways that you perform the best and then leverage that and let you focus on that and spend time in those ways instead of, you know, trying to get every single person to learn everything the exact same way in school, we would be a lot better off. And I think since you're making those computations all the time, what I also know as a researcher is that your brain is so attuned to doing the thing it's motivated to do and not doing alternative things. And so I think when someone else tells you what to do, why should you be motivated to do that? That's not the goal that you're computing. And so I think we're also constantly getting put in situations where someone else is telling you the goal, but your brain is not wired to be told by someone else what to do. And so I think if neurodivergent people were also had more space to, and any learners, honestly, had more space to set their own goals and do learning in the context of what is giving them intrinsic motivation, um, a lot of these kind of apparent deficits would look quite different. You know, I think that there's a tension between, um, if I can speak from something I noticed in retrospect from my own schooling, uh, in a neurotypical or whatever um, mindset, there's a direct correlation between effort and uh, output. I don't mean mm-hmm. quantity. Qu- I mean quality. Effort and quality. Mm-hmm. Sorry, I should say. Um, mm-hmm. qu- quantity too, but I- I'm speaking more of quality in what I'm about to say. And I used to think until fairly recently that it was sort of whatever the opposite. I mean, like the, the, the correlation was negative, right? Like in the sense that like at my last job, um, I used to, I remember when they sent us home three years ago, right? And it was very clear that any assignments we got were busy work. Like, because, and I don't necessarily blame them for doing that because they didn't know what to do because our job involved teaching city government workers and the city had not sent everybody a computer. So we could not teach them. <laughs> right. So I, so they were just like, pulling things off the shelf and being like, edit this, right? And at some point, we realized that however long it was going to take, we were going to have to teach the classes online, which obviously people know how to teach classes online, but we were, we had been teaching in person. And as they finally started to get their computers, we had to prepare to teach online. So they they told everybody to, you know, prepare a little presentation to do online. Now, I 
as it turns out, that was the summer that my article that people were paying attention to them. Um, And so I was getting talks online. Wasn't that hard for me to do that. So Mm -hmm. I put together a really short deck and presented on some of the research I was doing, like racial linguistics and so forth. Just something that I was interested in. They said, you can do whatever you want. Just we want to practice the tools. And then they told me afterwards, like, it's clear you put a lot of work into that. And I want to be like, no, no, I didn't. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like 15 minutes. Uh, I didn't even practice, you know. Um, mm-hmm. and I, and I also thought that, um, the, uh, when I took the SAT, like, I didn't really study it. Um, and then there were tests where I really did study and didn't do well. Yeah. Um, and also, I realized, so I, and also I didn't do well in the busy work. So the point is, I really thought that, like, if I'm not interested, the, the quality will suffer, and therefore, the, and, and I, and I don't want to be bad. So then if I have mistakes, it usually means that was the hardest I could possibly try. Mm-hmm. And when there aren't any mistakes, it would mean that I wasn't even trying very hard. But to other people, it looks the opposite way. However, I realized I'm think I'm think so that, you know, I'm thinking of particular moments. It's not actually true broadly, because there are very many things at which I really did put in a lot of effort and it went mm-hmm. and it was the best. I just don't remember yeah. that because because it, it aligns with neurotypical thinking. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like there are cl- clearly very many tests where I sat down, studied, and did better because I studied. There, yeah. I remember I, I remember the SATs because it stands out. It was such a big test. But like, yeah. there were plenty plenty of tests that I just like I just did the homework and I did the test and it went fine. <laughs> so it's yeah, more that there is I, it's more that there's no correlation. Is my point. Well, I wonder if those success moments also were building off of something that you had a lot of intrinsic motivation and gradual learning over uh, before that moment came. Well, what happened was, like with the SAT, right, I I was doing not very well in standardized tests, right? You know, all the SAT twos, the the PSAT, right? The PSAT, I didn't go very well. So the, the, the head of the high school sits down with everybody talks about the scores. I mean, individually. And she said, Justin, I know you can do this. Which, I hated when people said that, because it was just like, not helping. Um, mm. But, and it would usually sort of demoralize me. But it yeah. seemed, for whatever reason, like this woman understood me. So, what I don't remember what she said, but I, I, I think I developed an intrinsic motivation to connect with her. Yes. Um, and I started, I had to find my own way to it. Like, it wasn't like taking a million practice tests. What I started doing was I started reading a bunch of more complicated novels and looking up words. So I built my vocabulary up. Um, and I think that's what it is. I, it, it's, it's just, you, you have to find your way in. You had to find your own style, yeah. Right. Um, And sometimes an extrinsic push is will give you the impetus to find your own way in because life is full of extrinsic pushes. You can't ignore them. 
Mm-hmm. But, you know, an extrinsic push is like, I don't want to run out of money. I better do something. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know, right. uh, yeah. it's like, oh, I want to be able to afford X, Y, and Z, you know, um, and, but the finding a way to do it, it's like pure extrinsic motivation. First of all, I don't think it works on people in general for very long. Like, I think most people, not just neurodivergent people, you, you will lose interest after a while if it's just because other people are telling you to do stuff, which is why yes. school school can not work for a lot of people. Yeah. But particularly for us, it's just like we really have to find our own way in to sustain the 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 uh, energy necessary if it's going to be over uh, something that takes a long period of time for like 15 minutes, I don't really care. But like, uh, or like a short thing, you just do it. But like for something that's going to take a long time, like a dissertation or a book or, or a study or things that's just going to take a long time and there's nothing you can do about that. You got to find mm-hmm. your way in. And I wish that the problem is you can't tell people what their way in is. Cause I don't know everybody. <laughs> and also neurodivergent people might not even have as many examples of that. If it's, you know, not being modeled to them or they don't have teachers who share their style, their neuro familiar neurotypes around, too. So you almost have to be uh, more creative yourself. There's there's something about actually what you were saying, thinking about effort. There's a few interacting factors that we think of. Uh, that kind of drive your motivation for effort. So basically, um, when we, t- when we talk about cognitive control, like a hallmark thing is that you can only do one cognitively control demanding activity at one time. So, you know, you can't do your math homework and also be in a conversation with someone else, right? So it's these, it's these activities that really require your brain to be very focused on one thing and pushing down the others. And we think that's very associated with the experience of effort is how many other things do you have to, uh, you know, uh, distractions are you bending off to be able to do your thing? So we also know that it's it's a valuable skill, right? Per- pursuing goals is valuable. So there's a few different subjective signals that we get um, that modulate our motivation. So the first one is boredom. So if you're not doing anything with your cognitive effort, we think of that as a signal your brain gives that's like, all right, hey, you're, you could be doing some valuable cognitive effort right now. Go look around. So that's boredom. And then, but then the flip side of that is fatigue. And we think fatigue might have to do with, hey, you've been doing this task for a long time and actually there might be some more valuable alternatives. Maybe you should disengage and look around. And then the third thing that I think is really interesting and important is information seeking, learning and information seeking. And so you could think that, um, you 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 basically in the moment your brain is saying oh you know since i'm learning on this thing you know i'm making some mistakes um but this is going to have value for me in the future cuz i'll picked up a, a skill so when i thought about your example of the thing that came to you really quickly that's why i thought maybe that was something that was effort in the past that gave you dividends now because something can be super complex but it won't feel effortful if it's really well practiced for you. And I think another thing is a lot of people 
can get stuck in doing a task, just repeating the same type of task over and over again. They're not, they don't get to learn. It's not really sufficiently novel to them. I think in neurodivergence, sometimes people are quite novelty seeking, even though that's also a general feature of cognition. And so, um, uh, so all of those things are interacting. And sometimes the stuff that's the most effortful is, that's kind of a signal that that's not quite the exact right thing to be doing. I mean, if you're on it and it's such a drag and you're feeling so fatigued and it's just really wiping you out, that might be your, you know, decision-making brain saying, why are we doing this? What is this up with our goals? And so I don't think most of our workplace or education systems are, you know, particularly tuned to getting you out of those because it's a very one-size-fits-all linear track to things. You know, I wonder though, because like the, the, the struggle is like, there's so many different branches away from quote unquote neurotypical, right? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Norm, so neuronormative maybe is, yeah. Yeah. Well, nor, isn't neuronormative more like the forcing of people to be that? Like the, yeah. Yeah, so. yeah I don't really think of like a neurotypical person so much as neuronorms that some people you know, right. Like I think it's mostly imaginary. It's just standards. Yeah. Right? It's imposed yeah. standards, standards. Right. And that's what, yeah. that's what I mean. So, yeah. so it's the same way. Cause like the whole book I wrote about the English teaching and it's just like what I think freaks people out about saying that, like, I mean, this podcast is called unstandardized English, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, is like, well, then what do we do? There's too mm-hmm. many options. And like, I understand that because it is challenging but what we're doing ain't working yeah. so we should at least yeah. explore different paths um and i think this you know because like there's certain things like you know because i get like i said i, I get up to my because i do think it's still valuable to be able to achieve especially to me it's not just goals but particularly like things that take like a lot of steps right yeah that is a skill I mean, it's not one skill, several skills, but like just the idea to, to stick with certain things. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are certain, and like it's, and this, I think the sub skill is knowing when it's worth sticking with something and when you should give up. Yeah. Right. And not give up like and feel bad about it, but like, this is a waste of my time. Yes. And it, I think it just really takes a long time and a lot of different experiences to know, is this a waste of my time or, and I just, you know what I'm saying? Like, and, and yes. like I'm, I'm only now getting, not now, but in the last few years, getting to the point where I understand that about myself. It was something. Yeah, opportunity that, costs. Mm-hmm, yeah, the, exactly. Right. Yeah. The economic term. Right. So, yeah. you know, I think about that. Uh, I think back to early teaching days and some of the students who were really just sort of goofing off. And I, I realized that they were similar to me and that they were just bored. You know, they yes. like to like give me more to do. And I was like, oh, yeah. OK, but how do you know it's that? Because then you've had students who are goofing off because they don't understand. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so, you know, uh, and they had 40 kids in the class. So, like, how, how do you keep track of all that? You know, um, but I when you talk about the creativity, like best teacher I ever had was an English teacher who, for no particular reason, would. um when we finished a book, especially when we were in like fourth and fifth grade, because I had it like five different times, um, we would do like the quizzes would often be like a, 
like we use the eraser and it was like a Jeopardy thing, like you like with two teams and you would like slam the your and answer the question and get it right. Um, and gamifying. Yeah, that. And then she would come in with costumes and we would like portray the characters. And then like it got to the point where because I did I used to struggle to do the readings, and not because I couldn't do it because I. Mm-hmm. I just didn't really do my homework for a few years. Uh, and back in that day, I, part of what forced me to actually do it was that, like, I didn't want to lose the game. <laughs> so I was like, <laughs> I, better, I better find out the answer to these things. Yeah. Uh, and um, but so, you know, I think what you just said, those I don't know which one is the most dominant uh, language what I mean is boredom, fatigue, and information seeking. Mm-hmm. I think those are all subsumed under boredom in the imagination, right? The way we talk mm-hmm. about it outside of the expertise, like you're mm-hmm. demonstrating, is that even myself, I think uh, information seeking or novelty, like I don't really care. But the, the point is, like, these things are related, but they're not the same. And I think that even for people who are experiencing it, we think of it all as that, whereas, and so we try to solve it based on it being boredom when it might mm-hmm. be one of the other things. Mm. And, and to, that is almost, I don't know if it's impossible, but it's very difficult to anticipate which one it will be before it yeah. happens. <laughs> I want to add a word to treating it like it's boredom, which is treating it like it's laziness. Well, that, that I'm, yeah, I, I've, I've, I've been with you on that for years. So, yeah. and that was something that happened to me. Is, that's what, it's related to what I said about the quality and effort thing. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Because whenever MLS job, you know, they always said, like, if something would, would not come in well, they would just say, you're clearly not trying hard enough. Yes. Um, and I remember times, like, really focusing as, like, as, as hard as I possibly could, and there would still be mistakes. And I'm just like, I really don't know. Um, and now like I'm in a much better place professionally, I mean, a different job and everything. And now it's a situation where, you know, the way that I'm able to take interest in things and sort of ride the waves of interest, I'm I'm able to, you know, slap myself in an hour and do a podcast so I I can get through the rest of the day, you know, um, and because uh, I was res- I responded to a work email while I was talking to you. So uh, <laughs> look, work, work, work emails count as work. They do by law. Uh, I, you technically yeah. I'm just saying in a sense, I technically am working this hour because I responded to a work email. So, you know, um, I guess they, I should not let them listen to this one. But anyway, <laughs> so, <laughs> this far uh, yeah, I guess I could. I mean, you know, it's just lunch break or something like that. Um but as long, the point is, as long as I get my work done, I leave me alone. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Which is really how it should be. I understand shift work, but I don't have that kind of job. So um, I used to years ago, but I don't anymore. And it's one of the things I realized. And and anyway, so I, I started with this whole line of thought because I was about to say something about academics. Um, and it's one of those things where I feel there's so many neurodivergent academics because it's one of the fields in which you can explore all the parts of your brain, right? I get it. Mm-hmm. Um, or maybe I would say, I don't know that there's more neurodivergent academics. I think that neurodivergent people seek academia, but I don't know that it's necessarily a high percentage of the general population. It's just the general population hasn't had a chance to explore these things. Um, mm. I think that there are a lot of people in um, 
I don't want to say standard careers, but just regular jobs. Um, and I'm not saying regular in a negative way. It just means not this sort of thing. Um, who probably have the same things going on, but they don't realize it. And they've never sought treatment for it because it's not like, quote unquote, severe enough to completely stop them from doing things. And mm. they're just kind of miserable and they don't know why. You know, yeah. and I, I wonder going back hundreds and hundreds of years, I can, I'm, I'm wondering, I'm thinking, you know, I think back to if this stuff is heritable, right? Then what the hell were my grandparents and great grandparents dealing with? Mm. Living in a Jim Crow situation with some version of the same thought processes I have, right? It's somewhere. It came from some branch, right? I'm pretty sure it's my mom's side, but then you got to look back, like, what about my grandmother? What about my great-grandmother, right? You know, what were they, they on no plan? Like, what, 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 what were they doing, right? And then somebody would say, well, they didn't even have time to stop and think because they're taking care of kids when they're, like, 17. <laughs> but I think that's true of a lot of people. I don't mean the 17 part, but I'm saying, like, mm. people have obligations, and as this is a, an issue that I deal with is that it's hard for me to take as much interest in my normal obligations and that's an issue because those things matter mm. and but anyway the point is I think that um, there's a lot more people who are in these positions than are given the chance to explore these things yeah and all the it's one thing for me to figure my stuff out not only do I have enough economic privilege to sit around thinking about it um or get treatment for it or at least the depressive stuff that comes with when these things don't work for me um right. but how many people never get a chance to stop and think about it yeah and i th- also think there's so much focus on the individual mm-hmm. and and themselves and i Probably learned about, um, you know, the social model of disability and neurodiversity maybe four years or five years ago. And yeah, I'm, I'm like a cognitive scientist, right? A, a full on school academic, like, and, and that's, I mean, I did hear about it through my university and through some peers, but, um, I think even, uh, you know, fostering the self advocacy to think, oh, maybe in this situation, what's not working is my, it's not me, it's my work environment, my education environment, I should actually ask for something to be different. I think that, you know, that neurodivergent self-advocacy is way underdeveloped and, and more flexible work environments and, you know, more kind of systematic changes to whatever the type of job is. I mean, I think there's a different version of most jobs that would be affording more access to, um, to neurodivergent peeps. So yeah, I I'm totally with you. I think sometimes there's benefits to not having glommed on to the uh, pathology lens you know, talking about people who haven't had treatment, you know, maybe if, but I'm not sure what's the, what would be the alternative narrative for them. I was um, just thinking back today about um, before I had a diagnostic label and uh, for me, my psychiatric uh, experience was at the start of grad school and this kind of moment of transition, I had to take time off and 
got this label and between then and when I started learning about neurodiversity and disability, it was felt really shameful. And, but before any of that stuff happened, I used to just be like a goofball. And I had this term, a total ladder move, which was just like doing really spacey, silly mistakes, like booking a train the wrong direction or AM, PM or, you know, just But I would just laugh with my friends like, you wouldn't believe what I did today. And, you know, it wasn't until I got those uh, psychiatric labels and I could look and, oh, I think that was that. But at the same time, are the psychiatric labels more real than, you know, my experience of it just as I'm a person and, and people make cognitive control mistakes. So I think that, um, I I think I see upsides and downsides to being able to see that pathology lens. And then on the other side, I think it does help with some self-understanding, self-acceptance. Oh, look, this is a a thing and I can't control it. And um, anyways, so. Yeah, I mean, when I was younger and not even just younger, I mean, it continues, but it's less often now just because I have more awareness. Um, Like one year I threw away my tax refund. (laughs) because <laughs> you know it comes as a check and then there's like more paper but i threw the check away instead of paper. yeah yeah now, the, the treasury owed me the money so i got i just told them that and they sent me another one but like because yeah. like they owe me but like that is back when i was making nine thousand dollars a year i was like i need this money <laughs> right and uh and i was just like and people understandably because of the sort of standardized mindset think that if I lose something, it means it's not important to me, but I lost some of the most important things to me Mm -hmm. and lost and or broken and so forth. And like, you know, before the diagnosis, like, you know, I would just be ashamed. I I still enjoy it when these things happen now. Mm, Right. Like it's, it's, it it just feels like there's holes in my brain, you know? Yeah. People want to put a lot of agency on what you do when it was not that way. Yeah. And and then there's, you know, there's the issue with like I don't um it's just yeah, with the laziness, you know, it's I mean, as you probably understand, what with your degrees and all, right? Many of us are neurodivergent in various ways, but also quote unquote academically gifted, right? Mm-hmm. And that tension is also a challenge because like people will say, why don't you call upon these skills? Mm-hmm. And I think as I used to as a little kid, because as a little kid, when homework is not very complicated, I didn't have to practice. I just would be like, okay, you know, because they're teaching the kids how to read and I knew how to read. So I just like, I'll yeah. go in this corner, read, I'll go in this corner, read this book. You know, and they didn't have to do anything. Um, and then as things got, to me, it was like seventh grade, because that's really sort of where the jump academically seems to happen when it's, you're like mm-hmm. a kid and then you're not really a kid anymore in terms of the school, mm-hmm. right? And, um, that's when I was just like, what the, what the, what the fuck? <laughs> just like, cause I just had some teachers who like, you had to take a whole lot of notes cause they were teaching you how to take notes and I cannot take notes. I can't take notes and speak. I can take notes, but I can't take notes and speak. And mm-hmm. or, or or be engaged in a conversation. So if I am in a, a call and some, they like I need somebody to volunteer to take notes, it's just like if I don't have anything to say, sure I could take the notes in a very detailed way. But if mm-hmm. I have to say stuff, people, it's it's but it's but you know I'm for whatever reason, 
uh, been accepted at my job from the beginning. I was pretty upfront yeah. about it. I know it's a risk to mention a diagnosis in the process, but I said, I don't want to have to be tiptoeing around this for several months. They're going to figure it out, even if I don't tell them. Uh, mm-hmm. And I also was just like, wherever I go next, I got to be upfront about this. Um, yeah. They have to not, whatever. And it's risky, but I was in a position where I didn't like my last job, but I had a job. Mm-hmm. So I was like, I can afford to find the place that's going to value this because like I've known for, cause m- most of my coworkers don't live here. So like, even if I'm in the office, they're not around me. They're on the computer anyway. So they, uh, it's all Zoom time is the point. And I'm well known for sending private chats about like funny observations I'm having, <laughs> but they, and so usually when there's like nine of us on the call, if you see one person smiling, it's cause I sent them something. <laughs> <laughs> it's little things like, because we have work backgrounds and there are certain colors. And then like, yeah, I was usually commenting on the way people's like hair and clothes match with the background and stuff like that. So, yeah. Um, so, but yeah, I think uh being able to name and identify, you know, what are your specific styles is so valuable. Like in that example of what you told your work, um, there's um, a disability studies scholar named Margaret Price who wrote a book called Mad at School. And in it, she talks about how in her syllabi, she'll model um, that kind of openness with her students and put something like, if I don't respond to you right away, please send me a follow-up email because, you know, my memory is such that I won't remember to respond to you again later. But trying to normalize a culture of being able to say what you need to be successful. And, yeah, I think that's that self-advocacy piece. I thought of another one. I don't know if you have this, but um I love this concept of complementary cognition. So when I was a kid, super spacey, my best friend was like super vigilant, you know, she was really on it. And so I would be like laughing, having fun and then leave my backpack on the bus. And she would be the one who checks around for the backpack and would make sure I didn't forget it. But then at the same time, if she was really worried about something, you know, kind of anxious, I would be very relaxed and kind of bounce that out. And I think also we put so much in the individual, but groups of people can just leverage what different skills that you have. Uh, and there's no need for one person to be, you know, doing it all at a particular level. Obviously, everyone's style is going to be different. So um, I I feel like there's a lot of value in the, the person who's sending the Zoom DMs, you know, making people smile, bring, lifting the mood a little. So Yeah, yeah I mean, it's, and I don't, it wouldn't have worked in my last job because they would have been like, shut up. But, like, mm-hmm. um I think that, you know, when I was a kid and I was sort of a class clown, like you said, but it's because I wasn't paying attention. Like, I am on the ball. I'm never late for a meeting at work or anything. Like, maybe 30 seconds late, but, like, I'm never, like, late, late, you know. Whereas at my last job. And, and, like, the symptoms increase when I'm not supported. Yeah. So, like, the worse I feel, the more scatterbrained I get. Mm -hmm. And I have to build in so many protections that it, you know, it becomes sort of a fixation on the the protections, you know, the, mm. the the barriers I have to build around my head to not fall through the cracks, and it ends that that's where the fatigue comes in. Mm-hmm. When I'm thinking of like, all right, how much should I spend today? 
Okay. How much it, you know, um, I'm not saying I'm not going to do it. I have to, I have to, when I want to change a habit, I, 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 I did read that book, The Power of Habit, which is actually pretty helpful in terms of like doing constructive steps to make something a habit and not a one-off. Mm-hmm. Um, and they say it takes a certain amount of time before, for me, for something to stick, I have to get, I have to get over the hump of to where on, on the other side of it, it is harder for me not to do the thing than to do the thing. <laughs> yeah. Cause like right. it took, it took me six years to figure out how to run. Right. I started running in college cause I wanted to lose some weight. I'm not saying that's a good idea, people. I'm just saying that's what I wanted to do. Uh, and the first time I went running, cause I had, ne- obviously I have physically run before, but I had never run really for exercise and I'm 20. Right. So, uh, you know, I'm not like 10. I, it's not, it's not, like, it's not like a complicated thing to do, but I still thought, well, I'll just go run and I'll run for an hour. I ran for 30 seconds <laughs> because I didn't know how to do it. So I ran way faster than my actual fitness. And it ended up being a nice day because it was like a summer day and I didn't have anything to do. So I just ended up taking a long walk in New Jersey, right? This is when I was in Princeton. Um, yeah. and I was running down Carnegie, right? You know, and, it was a nice day, so I got to enjoy myself by the lake for two hours, but uh I certainly didn't exercise very much, and <laughs> it you know I, I did start I kept trying to do that in the in the fall of that year, and I, I would always as soon as there was a possible excuse, I would not you know I was like, ah, it's raining, eh, it's cold, eh, I'm tired, right, and then. Same thing happened the next year when I was back home after college and my dad lives next to Central Park. So I would like run in Central Park. But then again, I look back. I wasn't really tracking the distance back then. And I, uh, I looked back at my distance later on like a, a map, like a map, map my run situation. I run it like a mile, which is fine. It's just funny considering how much I ended up running later that I thought that I was so impressive. Um, but then I gave up again. And I moved to South Korea, and I gave up again. And, then, and, then, and, then, and I finally, I, I had to lock myself in sometimes. So I signed up for the marathon, and then well, yeah. I had no choice but to figure it out. Yeah. <laughs> so that seems wild and, and sort of immoderate in the sense that, like, going from I don't know how to run to, well, you better figure out how to run this marathon in a year uh, is, is is a lot. But I also, I know how best to use my brain sometimes, even back then before any diagnoses or anything like that. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I hear pre-commitment in that. And that's definitely a huge, real effective motivator. I think the hard line to tread is that also giving yourself that grace in the times when you didn't do it is important, not internalizing, you know, when it didn't go well, but definitely uh, the habit science is like, it's so hard to know, oh, man, I'm driven so much by all of these automatic responses and associations I have, even though I feel like I have so much autonomy. And, um, yeah, I mean, deadlines are also super effective motivators until they're not. You know, once you get into, like, stress and, you know, starting to internalize negative feelings around it. But pre-commitment, if you can do it with, you know, a goal that is well aligned with your own values is is probably one of the more effective motivators. And also social. 
social motivation is so huge. Like you, you talked about that teacher, you kind of created that bond, but, um, you know, um, with, with neurodivergence, they talk about body doubling, like having another person around when you're doing something. That is 110% how things work for me. I made this game when I was in middle school called the goal setting game. It's kind of like Pomodoro. You, you have a, a friend, you pick a time period, you say what you're going to do. And you lose the game if you go off task, if you do more than what you said, or if you do less than what you said. So I'd be calling out my bestie and being like, all right, let's do our homework. And, um, but you know, I felt like the whole thing was about the goals, but I think it was actually about having, having that, that social input study partner. So another thing that's, that's great to leverage, but I guess can be, yeah, can be hard if you're, if you're not among people who are also trying to reach a goal and in alignment with you. And yeah. Yeah. And I I really thought every time I go back to school and I better stop now, um, (laughs) that's that's enough degrees. I always think I'm going to find people to do that with, but it's just hard for me to find the right people to align with. So then I end up doing everything by myself. Um, And I can, but I just, you get fatigued, you know. So I do. I do have to go back to work, obviously. So I, I I want to thank you for your time having this conversation. It was really interesting, at least for me, and I hope it is for the listeners. Um, if you have any final things you want to say about neurodivergence and sort of decision making and and uh, some really interesting stuff that uh, you know we covered here for the people who are paying attention, uh, feel free. Um. Yeah, I mean, I I think that what I want to say about it that is kind of lending into what I hope to do with the next part of my career is that I think we really do use these neural norms and enforce them. um, And we think that they kind of signal something super meaningful about, you know, the best way, the, the, you know, prime executive function and everything else is, is wrong. And I think that What's really critical is that we take into account individual differences, context, um, and thinking about, is there really only one right way to be doing this task or this executive function? Or if we make things more flexible and if we encourage people to leverage their own intrinsic motivation around something, you know, give more projects that someone actually gets to decide what they're focusing on. Do some of these uh, differences kind of fade away? And also, can we think about, you know, you brought up habits, how some things are rewarded in our society or culture. Um, You know, using self-regulation or using cognitive control can be very rewarded, but it can be very specific as to how that looks in different communities, cultures. And so I think we're often always making this comparison to, you know, in psychology, the weird um, study population. And I think really trying to back off of a one right way and thinking more expansively and making more room for different types of cognition. And then also remembering that there's complementary cognition. Not every person has to do, you know, all of the things. Uh, that's, that's really my, my wish and hope both for the research that it gets diversified and also for education, workplace environments. And, um, yeah, I hope we all start to speak up, question these neuronorms, 
um, and find a better way.